Hey, podcast listeners, Brian Zimmerman here, digital content editor for Jazz's Magazine. Just want to let you know that the podcast episode you're about to listen to was originally recorded as a video for our Jazz's Daily Brunch series. That video is available on our website, jazzes.com. You can watch it there, or if not, keep listening. You do you, podcast listeners. All right. Well, hello again, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of the Jazz's Daily Brunch. I am Brian Zimmerman, your host, digital content editor of Jazz's Magazine. And I got to tell you, it is always so nice running into you here at the Internet's hippest brunch place. Uh, We've got a very special item on the menu today, folks. Um, I hope you poured yourself an extra large cup of coffee because you're going to need it to match the steer, the sheer star power of today's special guest. Uh, it is none other than Boney James. You know him from everywhere. You know him from pretty much everywhere, I guess. If you're listening to contemporary jazz these days, you know Boney James. He's one of the biggest names in jazz, four-time Grammy nominee, Soul Train Award winner. He's got a couple of gold records under his belt. He's the man. He's the man, and he's going to be here in a minute to talk about his new album, Solid, which is coming out in June. Um, And let me remind you, before we get into today's brunch, I certainly don't have to be the only one asking questions. This is very much a roundtable discussion. So feel free to say hi on Facebook or YouTube, wherever you're watching. Drop us a line. Let us know where you're watching from. And ask away. At the end of the show, we're going to get to uh, asking some audience questions. So really excited about that. Anyway, we are going to get to this amazing conversation with Boney James in a minute. But first, I'd like to take a minute to thank some of this episode's sponsors. They include Conquer Jazz. So big news for them is that they recently released a new album, Ella 100, live at the Apollo. It was released April 24th, so it's out now. It celebrates the first lady of song, Ella Fitzgerald, and it was a live recording recorded at the Apollo in Harlem. Features some amazing performances by Andrew Day. Lettucey, Liz Wright, Cassandra Wilson, Monica Mancini, and so many more. It was hosted by uh, Grammy Award winner Patty Austin and Tony Award-nominated actor and singer uh, David Allen Greer. It was produced by Greg Field, who is actually a drummer for Ella Fitzgerald. And we had him on the show yesterday, a very special edition of Jazz's Brunch, kind of second course. Totally worth checking out. It's on our Facebook page. It's on our YouTube page. Greg tells this amazing story of how we started drumming with Count Basie. He was 17 years old. Basie's drummer showed up late, and it was very much a, hey, is there a drummer in the house situation? Greg stepped up to the plate, 17 years old, you know, never played with them before, and held it down. Uh, Anyway, you can learn more about this uh, release at Concord.com. We are also brought to you by Blue Sound. Blue Sound is an award-winning wireless high-res sound system that lets you play music in any and every room throughout your house. All you do is you choose your favorite uh, music perhaps a Boney James album, from uh, your streaming service of choice. Link it up with the free Blue OS app and connect it to your Blue Sound device. And there you go. Getting the kind of crisp and detailed sound that only an audiophile-grade system can deliver has never been easier. That is how you live. Hi-fi, folks. You can learn more at bluesound.com or by visiting our website, jazzes.com, where we have put together a Blue Sound buyer's guide. And let me remind you, for people watching the brunch and enjoying the brunch so far, big news for us. We're actually going to be moving 
to a 5 p.m. slot. Call it a jazz's happy hour come May 11th. Uh, kicking off that new time slot with uh, the guys of Go Go Penguin, an exciting uh, electronic jazz group out of England. So mark your calendars. May 11th, we're starting the 5 p.m. Eastern slot. But for right now, we've got our brunch going. I've got my tea ready to go. And I am excited to welcome our very special guest, Mr. Boney James. Hey there. Hey, man. How's happening? Welcome to the show, Mr. James, Mr. Boney, sir. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, for those who don't know, how did you get that nickname, Boney James? Well, you know, uh, it's not my legal name. It is <laughs> um in 1986, I was touring with uh, Randy Crawford, great singer, who I played with for five years off and, off and on. And uh, yep. that was my, my second professional gig as a, as a musician. And uh, we, she was very popular in Scandinavia at the time. So we would go over to Norway and Sweden, Denmark, places like that for months at a time, which was great. But it was very expensive over there back then. And <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we were getting sort of, you know, a decent per diem for food and stuff like that in the States, but over there it just wasn't cutting it. So I, I turned to Wayne Lindsay and Seku Bunch, a couple other cats in the band. And one day walking down the street and I said, man, it's per diem, not really cutting it. I just won't eat for the next couple of days, just joking <laughs> around. And, uh, and they said, oh man, you'll get all skinny. I'll have to start calling you Bodie James or something. Just and... a, a random joke. And I said, oh, please don't call me Bodie James. <laughs> that name so, won't stick. No staying power. Well, no, I just thought it was, you know. <laughs> Uh, please don't call me that. But just yeah. to mess with me, they kept calling me that. And that's kind of how you get a nickname. And totally, uh, man. when we got back to Los Angeles, they started introducing me to other musicians that way. And the next thing I knew, there was this whole segment of Los Angeles musician scene that thought that was my name. I A few years later, I was working with Paul Brown, getting ready to make my first record. He called Paul Jackson Jr. Uh, to play on the record. And he said, who's the artist? He said, it's sax player Jim Oppenheim my legal name. Right. And uh, and Paul Jackson said, oh, you mean Boney James. <laughs> and that's how it got into the record company's sort of view. Right. And they said, oh, well, you, you have to put the record out like that. I said, well, it is my nickname. You know, I was used to it. And uh, the rest is history. And the legacy was born, man. Yeah. Very cool. And now here we are almost 30 years later, 17 albums later, yeah. right? With the release of Solid. It's coming out June 12th. We got a little taste on uh, Spotify. There's some singles out. People go stream yeah. it. The music is awesome. You know, this is coming hot off the heels of Honestly, you know, which was number one Billboard Contemporary Jazz album. Uh, Future Soul, which was a mega hit. You know, so I'm curious with the new album, Solid. Here we are in 2020. As an artist, as a person, what were you trying to convey with this music? And what was the significance of that title, Solid? Well, you know, I'm never really trying to convey anything at first, but, but you know, I always just get the urge every couple of years to start making something new. And uh, luckily, the ideas are still flowing. And, and I always just try and start collecting musical ideas. I get these scraps of fragments of song or, or melody or chords or grooves or whatever, and I just collect them, I, you know, either on my phone or I have an old school memo digital recorder still I sing nice. things into. And um and I just let the music sort of lead what the record is about. And, and that's sort of a journey of discovery for me, really, every time as to what the record's vibe is going to be. And I have no preconceived notions and just let the music sort of take me where it goes. Um, it did become apparent sort of as I was getting into this one that a lot of the music had sort of this. There was there was this sort of a combination of sort of really heartfelt, sincere sounding grooves and then some mm -hmm. very hot 
higher energy, up-tempo kind of, you know, joyous, happy groups. Yep. And and I think at the time I was thinking it was more a reflection of the political scene we were in, you know, a lot of rough news going on out mm. there in the day. And I would get, I'm kind of a, a junkie, a news junkie a little bit. And, uh, and so I'd be stressed out or pissed off or whatever and come out to the studio and start making music. And the music would lead me in this happier place. Yeah. And uh, I think the record... Um, started to to give me that feeling of, well, I'm feeling good when I'm making this music. And I started to think one of the grooves just had this real pocket to it. And I thought the word solid popped it. The word solid popped into my head referring to the group. But then I thought solid is such a great word and that it means so many different things. And a classic jazz word. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to uh, relationships, though, I saw a great yeah. online urban dictionary said a solid relationship is when someone has got your back and is there for you 100%. And I thought, what a great oh, nice. sentiment that is, especially for these times that we are, we're Absolutely. living in. And it made me think about my relationship to music, which is that, you know, music's always been there for me. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of what made me feel like this is, a, this is an interesting title for the whole project. It, it says a lot in one word. Totally. And you, you're, you're right. There's a broad spectrum of grooves there, you know, very upbeat from the title track, this tune with Tenny, Kenny Lattimore, you know, and talk about a solid relationship too. I mean, he's, you guys make great music together. You. you mentioned the collecting of scraps, you know, and just always having an ear open to collect good sounds. There's a story I heard about uh, this album. One of the tunes, a couple of grooves came from an unlikely place, a sound check. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Um, well, you know, I, a couple of times over the last few years, uh, the guitar player in my band at the time, a guy named Kendall Gilder, would just start, you know, noodling around as guitar players do at Soundcheck. And uh, I was even in the dressing room a couple of times when I came out and I said, what is that thing you're playing? You know, and, uh, and he said, just chords I'm messing around with. And he would play it again and I would capture it with my iPhone. And I took a few of these groups home and loaded them into my computer, built a session, cut the little iPhone phone thing up and made a song out of it. Wow, nice. And, uh, and then of course, you know, replayed it eventually, but that was the genesis for this melody idea that kept in my head. And so I did a whole arrangement and everything around this little scrap of iPhone guitar groove on three of the songs on the record. And they really turned out to be great. Nice. Well, yeah. hey, inspiration can strike from exactly. anywhere, you know. Um, I understand, Boney, you've got uh, the title track queued up. Very happy to share some of this music um, on Boney's sound system. Yeah. Are we able to groove a little yeah. bit to that? Yeah, man. Very nice. And there is a new album, Boney James Solid, available for pre-order now. And I believe that single, that was the title track, Solid, correct, Boney? It is. That is available for streaming, yes? 
Yes, actually, they've got four four songs are out for streaming now. We're oh, going right to release on, a, we're going to release another song in the middle of May since the record release was pushed back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think they originally only intended to to release two or three, but since we've got all this extra time now, we're actually going to get up to I think almost half of the record will be out there available for streaming before the record itself actually drops, which is great. It is, man. It's the perfect time to listen to this kind of music too. Like you said, while we're all locked down, while we're all driving ourselves crazy with the news, this is exactly what you need. You could tell yeah. the song's groove just by the head nod, man. <laughs> and I'm sure if everybody watching turned on their webcams, there'd be a lot of simultaneous <laughs> head nodding. Um, tell me about J-Mo's. Jairus Mosey? Is that Jairus. Jairus Mosey, yeah. A collaborator on this album. You've worked with him yeah. a lot before. Yeah, well, Jarris goes, you know, he started playing guitar in my band when he was in his early 20s, you know, and just getting started. I mean, he started actually playing professionally very, very young. I think he was 16 or 17. But he ended up playing in my band for maybe two years. And I'm not entirely sure which era this was. I think it's mid, late 2000s. Okay. He toured with us for a while. And super talented guy. Um and at, at one point he said, I'm going to not tour so much. I want to concentrate on writing and producing. And, uh, and then went on to tremendous success. I mean, he's had covers and productions on, on Nicki Minaj records, Anthony right. Hamilton, of course, uh, Robin Thicke. Uh, most recently, I think he won a Grammy for working with Anderson Pack, And, um, you know, BJ the Chicago Kid and all kinds of super nice. cool projects. Yeah. And we had stayed in contact and we've written and co-produced, co-written, co-produced songs, I think, on my last two or three records. And including this one, we ended up doing four songs together on this rock record. And uh, so I'm just really, you know, really glad that, that that's still a, a wonderful collaboration that I have. And he brings that modern kind of R&B flavor. I mean, you mentioned yeah. all those names, Anderson Pack, BJ Chicago Kid, who yeah. are kind of continuing the legacy of that 80s, 90s, 2000s R&B sound today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, he brings a wonderful, wonderful vibe. Speaking of R&B, let's take it back, Boney, uh, to the early days. You growing up in New Rochelle, New York, uh, playing clarinet at first. What was your musical diet like <clears throat> as a kid? You know, what were you listening to? What was filling your ears? Well, you know, like most kids, I just used to turn on the radio. But, you know, in the mid-70s, when I was sort of becoming musically aware, the radio was this incredibly fertile place. And and Mm -hmm. there was even a station in New York where I grew up where you could listen to, you know, contemporary jazz, traditional jazz, and R&B, all on the same radio station. You know, they would just mix things up. And so I got exposed to a lot of different music. But um, R&B music was really the first thing that really got me excited. You know, uh, Motown, of course, first of all, you know, Stevie Wonder and and, and Marvin Gaye, you know, all those bands. And then I got into um, Aretha Franklin and Curtis Mayfield and, um, you know, just all that great early 70s, mid 70s R&B music, which I think was then starting to incorporate more jazzy instrumental flavors into their music. A lot of overlap. Totally. Yeah, a lot of overlap. From every genre. Mm -hmm. And almost simultaneously, you know, the fusion thing started to build up and and I heard Grover Washington Jr. for the first time. The first time Mm. I heard a sax player that was mixing the the R&B with the jazz saxophone, which I had picked up the horn by then. And so it was this big light bulb over my head that, oh my God, this, this can be a thing. And um, was there so a particular the, Grover Washington album that really turned your ear upside down? Well, the very first one I heard was Mr. Magic, you know, which okay. was such a huge hit crossover record in, in 1975. And uh, totally. I was 14 then and, and, you know, really just starting to get more into music in my, my saxophone. And so it was just a really great time. And uh, then, of course, I, and then Wine Light came soon after that. And, you know, yeah. these are classic records that still really stand the test of time. 
hundred percent. And then you went to college, studied history, but I'm sure we're playing, you know, all over the place, cutting your teeth on the bandstand, doing it the old fashioned way. I mean, before, you know, there were jazz programs, really, that's how musicians did it. Yeah, well, actually, when I first got up to UC Berkeley, where I went to school, you know, I kind of put the horn away for a little bit. You know, I thought I was going to give music up and just, you know, go the straight and narrow path. But I was so miserable, it didn't work (laughs) out. So in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I was back in Los Angeles visiting my family, and I hooked up with my high school band. And those guys had started to be out gigging, you know, and, and they had booked a gig at the Improv, which is a comedy club in Los Angeles but was, was actually hosting music nights at the time. And so I went and sat in with them. And that was the first time I'd ever really been up on a big stage with the lights and a crowd. And the, the intense energy was so dramatic. And it was like this epiphany. I thought that this is what I really love to do. And I need to get back into music. So I transferred to, to, to UCLA to, to keep playing with this band. And wow. that really changed my life. Nice. Now, back then, you know, as a kid, you know, you're really just starting out. What was your idea of success? You know, would it have been the Grammy Awards and the gold albums, or was it just to be on another stage? You know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, once I decided I, I wanted to be a professional musician, I got, had to get a job. You know, I was delivering pizzas for three or four years trying to figure out how to break into show business and uh, wow. playing in a lot of different bands, networking around, and, you know, just trying to figure it all out. And uh, I got my first gig was touring with Morris Day in 1985, and they were looking for a keyboard player. And I really, I played a little keyboards, but I, I of course, was mainly considered myself a horn player, but I, I was desperate to sort of break in. Right. And, uh, and I auditioned on Jungle Love and the Bird, and, and they gave me the gig that day. And that, that sort of started my, my career as a sideman. And I thought at that point, I had totally, that was it. I had made it, you know. And uh, I was just making a living as a musician, playing I played with Morris and Randy Crawford soon after, and the Isley Brothers and Tina Marie, and, and uh, you know, on and on and on, just bouncing around from gig to gig. But after seven years from, of that, my, my idea of success changed because I really realized I was frustrated and I had, I had started to write my own songs and I right. had this, this statement that I wanted to make and I really became ambitious to, to make a record and, and um, that was sort of the genesis of that. And so how did that work? You make the first record under your own name. Well, it was very, very difficult, you know. Back then, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I was on the road in 1988 or 89 with a pop singer named Martika, famous for Toy Soldiers. And uh, and I was really miserable. That was, you know, I was was only playing sax on one song and I was triggering vocal samples on a keyboard for a Mm. lot of the rest of the show. It was... I thought thought I might as well be flipping burgers at that point. And, and uh, I heard Kirk Whalem's The Promise record had just come out. I was in a record store somewhere, I think in Canada, maybe even. And, and it's like, wait, what's this? And sort of instrumental, contemporary instrumental music was just sort of starting to come back as a viable thing then, because it had kind of gone away for a little while. You know, when I was a kid in the yep. 70s, there were all these bands, you know, Sanborn, Benson, the Crusaders. They were, you know, Weather Report, getting a lot of, Popular bands, Popular real musicians, bands. yeah, yeah. But then that whole genre kind of died. But then it started yeah. to come back in the late '80s, and That's true. Um, and I thought, well, maybe this is something I can try and do. So I, I sort of reapplied myself to trying to write my own songs and and to get a record deal. And um, a couple three years later, I was in Bobby Caldwell's band playing, which was a great gig for me because it was almost all saxophone and wonderful songs, of course. And uh, the guy that was mixing front of house in that band was Paul Brown, who 
was sort of an aspiring record producer. He right. was hooked up with a little teeny label. He had made a couple of records with Sam Riney, another sax player. And uh, Sam Riney didn't want to work with this label anymore. They were a little unsavory. I didn't know this at the time. But um, Paul said, I, I, I've got this budget to make a record. Did you ever think about making a record? I said, yeah, I've got all these songs, Ben. Yeah. Two weeks later, we were in the studio making Trust. Nice. And okay. It was just this, <laughs> you know, gift dropped out of the sky. And uh, that record went on to sort of make my name. As an totally. Artist. Totally. And we will talk about it in a second. Boney, I want to take another quick minute here to thank some other sponsors of the show. Um, they include Mac Avenue Records. This label has been showing us the road to great music for 20 years now. Two cool new albums coming out by them. One is a keyboardist, Connie Hahn. She's got a new album called Iron Starlet coming out June 12th. And the other is uh, another young keyboardist named Christian Sands. His album, Be Water, will be available July 7th. Um, they've got a nice reissued Errol Garner series. They're going out. They're releasing one album per month a year until uh 2021 and uh so check that it's called the octave remastered series and they've also got a nice oscar peterson tribute out right now called oscar with love available in multiple formats including a 5 lp deluxe edition you can learn more at macavenue.com um, and thanks also to Smoke Sessions Records. They are a great record label out of Manhattan. They also have a jazz club there. Um, a new project out for them is Wayne Escoffrey's Humble Warrior. It's fantastic. I just listened to it. You can stream it everywhere. Uh, they also have a new album out by pianist Harold Mayborn. It was a recording of a concert he put on in 2018 or 2019. He passed away in 2019, but uh, it's called Harold. It's called Mayburn Plays Mayburn, and it's a really nice set. And you can learn more about that release at Smoke Sessions Records records.com uh so yeah man trust was the album that kind of introduced you to the world put metropolis on the map um were you kind of surprised by its success and the speed at which your career took off from that point absolutely you know i mean when i made that record i thought maybe my mother would be the only one that would buy one <laughs> but uh, as soon as it came out it started to garner a lot of attention i you know yeah. it got a lot of radio play and uh and for an independent label, it really sold really, really well. Although I did, you know, I started gigging as a front man. And people would come up to me and say, I can't find your record anywhere because what that label didn't really have was great distribution. Mm. Um, but the demand was there. And Warner Brothers Records noticed me. Bob James at the time was uh, working as a sort of consultant producer, executive A&R guy at Warner Brothers Jazz, which was really starting to grow into this big department. Right. And um and he was a huge champion for me. Well, I hadn't met him yet, but he he heard my record and liked it and sort of convinced them to buy my first record and hire me sort of away from this little label I was on and get me onto Warner Brothers. So then they re-released Trust. So that sold another 100,000 copies after that and, uh, and then put out my second record, Backbone. And then I had this long 12 or so year relationship with Warner Brothers. That was all pretty much thanks to, to Bob James. Nice. He was actually on the program. Uh, we spoke with the great Bob James, one of our first guests on the show. Yeah. So many albums came out, you know, during that period that it's like, there are so many endpoints to Boney James. I, I think I personally um, was turned on your music from Shake It Up, you know, Grazing in the Grass with Rick Braun. My dad would play that all the time. And talk about a mega hit. I mean, that song, right? You filmed yeah. a music video, I believe, for that we song, did. right? We did a big budget music video. I mean, you know, I was coming off of, I think, three gold records at the time that we made that. So the, the record company was really loving me. 
And uh, and Rick, of course, had just I'd recently signed to, to Warner Brothers. And so that there was this was their idea to, to kind of do like one of those duo things like Bob and, and David Sanborn had done yeah. with Double Vision, only with us, a different generation of cats. Right. And uh, and it worked out really, really well. I mean, musically as well as commercially, I think that's that record still lives, stands up pretty well. Absolutely, dude. And one of the rare entries into the jazz music video canon. You don't see uh, <laughs> many of those today. You know, aside from putting out these amazing albums, you know, Sweet Thing is another one of my favorites. You are known for putting on a hell of a live show, man. I'm sure everybody watching who has seen you live just knows when you're on stage, there's not a tush that stays in the seat. <laughs> you're up, you're weaving through the audience, you know, you're getting the crowd going. And you know, it's such a huge part of what you do. I'm wondering how you capture or try to capture that energy of a live performance in a studio album. It seems difficult to me, but and yet you seem to do it. So are there techniques for channeling that energy into a studio setting? Well, I mean, every time I'm recording a performance on the record, I mean, I am conscious of performing, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I feel the listener. So, you know, it's just a way of getting into that headspace. Although, you know, I think the energy of a record is different and rightly so from a, from a live gig, you know, to me, they're, they're sort of different mediums in a way, you know, I mean, a record is something that, you know, is going to live forever and um, or a show is always just in that moment. And so, um, but you do, you want to capture a feeling, a flavor, a mood on the record. And, and that's the main thing. So for, you know, I'm, I'm always just trying to be in that that imagination headspace when I'm recording. I mean, most of the stuff that's on my records, it all kind of flows out spontaneously. I might have an idea of what the melody mm -hmm. is, but usually I'll, I've, a lot of the performances in the last X number of years are, are me just trying to figure stuff out. You know, uh, when I'm recording the sax performance, I, I just kind of open that imagination spigot and what I play becomes the record becomes right. the song. And, um, and that, so I think that, that, that sense of discovery is maybe part of the energy that 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 I get when I'm listening to the record. Nice. That makes any sense. It makes total sense. Boney, you have played, you know, we mentioned these live shows. You've played almost everywhere. Um on some of the world's biggest stages, literally and figuratively, including um, on The Tonight Show. You are part of the rare, you know, tier of jazz musicians who have played, you know, broad, uh, uh, you know, network TV on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, sat in with The Roots. Yeah. What was that like, man? That's the, for I mean, it was, that's the big leagues. Yeah, it was kind of the thrill of a lifetime. You know, one of a, a few of the great moments, I think, in my career is to think, wow, this is this is big time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> was Jimmy into it? Is he a jazz guy? Was he coming rap with you, Jimmy? I don't know the backstory. I mean, I, I did know Questlove. You know, he had played on a couple of my records um, before he became, you know, of course he was the drummer in The Roots at the time, mm -hmm. but wasn't who he is now he's sort of this you know global television superstar guy right. from, from from this night show but so we sort of knew each other we not not friends per se but um and i i'm assuming jimmy must like something about the music and have some <laughs> some but uh, you know he was very friendly when we hung out that day um but i don't know if he's a fan himself or, or that aware of of my music but I'm super grateful that I had that opportunity. That was a very cool moment. Yeah. yeah, we, we I'm sure, have fans watching from all over the world. You know, and as you tour, I'm kind of curious, just on a personal level, are there specific spots, specific cities that you just love to find yourself in again and again and love to explore? Well, you know, 
I mean, there's that great line from Hoosiers, the movie, the Gene Hackman basketball movie, where he, he tells the team, you know, the court and this is the same size everywhere you go. And I kind of feel that way about gigs, you know, um, wherever we are, if there's an audience there on a stage, it's going to be my favorite place at that moment. Um, when I was starting out, certainly there were some towns that were early to embrace me. And a lot of those places still are kind of places where I know we're going to have a really crowded, yeah. bigger, good gig, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, you know, see, these are some markets, I think that um, Chicago, where, where, you know, I had an early success and still sense a lot of love when we go there. So I, I, I reciprocate that back. Right on, man. Yeah, I, you know, and I'm just curious how long it's going to take before we can get back to some of those venues, or I know, you know, jazz cruises, you know, was jazz cruises, that's turned into another wonderful thing. You know, I mean, I, I've been co hosting the, the smooth jazz cruise for the last for three, four years now um, with Marcus Miller. And um, it's a wonderful experience, you know, to be on the ship with, the, with all these great musicians and all these people who have a, a shared interest in the communal flavor of that. And um, fingers crossed, man, you know, go scientists. That's what exactly. I'm thinking every day. Yes. <laughs> Rooting for the scientists yeah. for many reasons, but yeah. one of them is so we can get back on the smooth jazz cruise. Well, <laughs> hey, I want to I wanna ask one more question of my own before we open it up to the audience. And it has to do with the, you know, tush out of the seat factor that we uh, discussed earlier. And for me, it's, you know, one consistent theme in jazz from the earliest days, New Orleans, trad jazz, King Oliver, you know, Louis Armstrong stuff on through the swing era, on through fusion, on through contemporary jazz has been that it's a music to dance to. You can dance to this music. And, you know, granted, for as long as there's been music to dance to, there's been music to kind of think about and contemplate to. But dancing was always a big thing. Um, and in some ways, there are some segments of jazz that have moved away from that. You know, to the extent that there are radio stations now that play contemporary jazz and quote unquote real jazz, you know, forgetting that this thing is a continuum. Um, does that bother you in the least or, you know? <laughs> um, sure. I mean, I don't want to get into a huge argument about it, yeah. but I mean, to me, jazz always meant freedom. And totally. uh, and I think somehow in many, in a little bit in the recent years, it's become a little bit more of a restrictive term or there's, there are elements of the, the, the. I don't know if it's who's you know if it's, it's marketing the, more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I I don't I don't I I'm just trying to be myself and do what I do and uh, and that's what I'm going to keep doing and I I almost don't care what one calls it you know I mean I prefer Boney James music when referring to my own music. There you as, go, man. As a, and and rather than than trying to you know make sure that it's just sort of restrictive genre specific uh, criteria. Um, but yeah, I think it is a little ahistorical for some totally. people to think. That. You know, I mean, jazz music was popular music for many, many, many years. And, yeah. and so I'm just doing what I do and, and I'll let other people worry about those bigger questions. I love it, man. Jazz means freedom. Quote yeah. of the day. Quote <laughs> of the day. Thanks, Boney. Hey, Jeff, our producer, Jeff, I would love to open this brunch up to some questions. I saw that we had some online. Any chance you can? Uh, oh, here we go. From Anthony Walker. Hey, was our number one fan. Boney, can you explain the process that went into recording I Get Lonely? Well, I mean, that of course, question, is a, Anthony. yeah, um, that's a great um, Janet Jackson song, and I, I fell in love with the bass line on the original record, and and the incredible roads, and I thought that just it, it gave me a feeling, and I thought I wonder if I can fit my voice playing the saxophone into there. I mean, doing any cover is always a challenge. You know, you have to have a an idea slant, uh, a, right. a passion to try and make it your own. 
And that was just one of those songs that's so greasy, you know, in the original, I thought that that might fit my voice on the tenor. And uh, and we gave it a shot and I'm, I'm really, really fond of it. But, and, and we recorded it mostly live. Actually, we were recording at Mad Hatter Studios, Chikoria's studio. Oh, nice. Silver, like, yeah, which we did a couple songs on that record there. And it was my mostly my live band at the time. David Torkinowski on keyboards, Ron Lawrence on guitar, um, Don L. Spencer Jr. on drums. And we just kind of let it rip. And, and that, that's what came out. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one cool approach. You know, you're taking a vocal song, you're making it instrumental. I'm curious about collaborating with vocalists. You know, some of your iconic tunes, Be Here, stuff like that, when you're working with the vocalist, you know, with original lyrics. How much leeway do you give them to, hey, you know, you come up, these are your lyrics. You, you know, do what you want. And how much is collaborative? Well, you know, uh, over the last few years, most of the vocal collaborations I've been doing have been over the internet anyway. Uh, oh. um, yeah. Some, some in the studio at the same time, just working together. Um, but last, I think three, you know, Avery Sunshine, Stokely, uh, Raheem Devon and Kenny Gladwell, last four all over the internet, met over the internet, created the song over the internet. Um, so it's been a process of, of, you know, Here's the music. Here's my melody idea. A mm. um, couple of those things where they just Stokely just took my melody and wrote lyrics to it. Uh, Kenny Lattimore, Avery Sunshine sort of went off in another way. And and when they sent me their ideas back, I was just almost completely blown away. It was like almost a complete record performance and and lyric. You know, I, I might have had a couple of little. I might need something slightly different here or slightly different here. And they, Every sunshine when she was doing fixes was on the road in Europe trying to find a studio to to redo little bits, um, but the Kenny Lattimore one, the new one, it just was just came back fully formed, and uh, uh, and now it's kind of a hit on RV radio. So it's it's been pretty wild, but yeah, freedom for them definitely. You know, I I, I want to see. I'm not a singer, I'm not a lyricist, and uh, when those guys take you know my music and, and turn it into what it becomes, it's just it's a crazy wonderful moment. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, somebody had a question about festivals. Daniel wants to know about festivals. Remember the first time you walked out on a festival stage, that sea of people? Where was that? When was that? Well, I, I remember one of my very first gigs it was in Detroit. I can't remember what the venue was, but um, it was during the trust period and Metropolis was getting played a lot on the radio. And, and uh, I, I know Michael Franks was on the bill. He was okay. huge. So it was a it must have been nine or ten thousand people, and we started the show with Metropolis. Came out and Metropolis was playing, and just the response I got from the audience was like, "Oh wow, this this might actually be working." I'll, I'll never forget that that feeling. So that was my first time in front of a super big crowd and and having them sort of know who I was. Very nice. Do you have any you know? Des oh, here's another question from I guess is Ruby. Thanks for your question. Is there one place that would you love to perform that you have not yet? Uh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know just about anywhere right now. Yeah, like, right. We're exactly. out of my house. <laughs> That's a great answer. Anywhere, <laughs> anywhere. I mean, definitely, I'm I'm missing it. You know, we we had a huge tour scheduled uh, for, mm -hmm. to support the new record, and um, I'm hoping we'll get to play some of those shows in the fall. But at this point, it's a big question mark. Um, I remember when when Barack Obama was in the White House. I, I thought, well, you know, maybe we can do one of those. You know. White House things, but uh, we yeah. never were invited. But uh... on the lawn, all right. So maybe the White House lawn one day. Hey, I can double down on that question and ask about collabs because we do still have the power of the internet. Um, is there anyone on your radar you'd love to really collaborate with that you haven't yet? Well, of course, Stevie Wonder. You know, is 
still, you know, basically my favorite artist in terms of if you look at my 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 iTunes playlist. There's a lot of Stevie Wonder. And, and um, I did do a bunch of benefits for him. He's got that, you know, a great Christmas charity concert he puts on here in Los Angeles. And I think I did four or five of those. So we got to meet and hang out a little bit. And I got his number and called him a few times to see if I could get him at least to come play harmonica on a, a track. But that has still not worked out. So that's right. on my list. Stevie, if you're listening, <laughs> we need a collab. Um, all right. Let's see. Tonda wants to know, this is a good question. Musicians are home, you know, under lockdown. Uh, you're working on stuff. You're writing songs during this downtime. How are you keeping yourself busy? Well, it would be a good time for that, except I really just turned in the new record. And, and what happens to me creatively is when I, when I finish a record, I sort of go into this fallow period. I mean, I think it, I've always analogized it kind of, kind of like having a baby and a woman doesn't want to have a baby right after having a baby. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's a long and difficult and you know, painful, but it's an intense process making a record. And I've spent the last you know year and a half working on the solid CD. And now I'm in that period where I would mainly be concentrated on promoting it. And, uh, and it's not, not really a creative period. It's too soon, I would say, but yeah. um We'll see how long this thing drags out for, and and you know when I when I have time on my hands, I do get antsy, and I find myself coming out to the studio and and working on new music. So that that could happen, but hasn't happened yet. I've still, I mean, I'm practicing every day, and I am doing these Facebook lives every Friday. Yeah, I saw those. Right. So I'm, I yeah, to me that's it's 20 minutes of almost a performance, and uh, you know it, it's planning it and just. I've got to dig up backing tracks for some of my old songs that I don't even know that I have. I have to build a couple things and, and relearn the music from the new record so I can play it. So that's been keeping me somewhat busy. I saw those. So those are on your Facebook page. Uh, and Rosa, we will get to your question in a second. Um, those are on your Facebook page, live Fridays, um, playing some deep cuts you know, from the album, right? Uh, and what is that Facebook page? What's the best page for people to follow along? Uh, I think if you just Google Boney James Facebook okay. Live, you'll find it. But on Facebook, it's just my, my I think it's www.facebook.com forward slash Boney James. And you cool. will be on my on my Boney James Facebook. Fridays, what time? 3 p.m. Pacific time. Every Friday, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do my part, man. Right on. Yeah. Boney, we got another question here from Rosa. Any plans for a live CD or DVD? Those are big. Yeah, I, well, I hear of that question a lot because, as you say, people do respond really well to the live gig, and, and I love playing it, totally. but that is mostly driven by the record company. I'm still on Concord now, and um, my understanding was that they never really felt like those records you know, were selling as well as the studio records were from a lot mm -hmm. of acts that they put them out. So uh, I think it's possible, but it's not something that's, at least in, in, in my world, that they, they felt it was not a huge worthy investment on their part, but um, it could happen, you know, um, I'd be open to it. You know, it does, the songs are different live. The energy yep, is different. Totally. You know? Yeah. Yep. It's a great energy. I'd love to see one. Uh, Wesley had a question a little bit while back about, you know, you picking up the saxophone and, and your inspiration. And you mentioned earlier that Grover was a big part of that, uh, big part of that inspiration. I'm curious, which was the first sax you picked up? Well, I actually started on clarinet when I was eight. Right. That's all they had were clarinets. And uh, two years later, there were so many clarinets in this elementary school band that they leaned on me to play the sax. And I resisted because it was a much heavier <laughs> case. I was going to have to stay in school. But as soon as I picked it up, it really became my favorite thing to do. And I think 
I think I, because I realized that I could play more pop music and, and the, yeah. the word then starting to be sax solos on the radio. And I connected to the fact that this, this saxophone could be more fun than the tenor. Was it a tenor or an alto? It was then? an alto. Alto. Okay. Yeah. I switched you- to tenor early years of high school and then I switched back to alto uh, for Bobby Caldwell. The two years I played with Bobby, he was 100% alto and I, I had to really work on my alto and then the tenor kind of fell away and then. I had to get my tenor back when I started making the, the trust CD. It's an interesting period. Nice. Did you, do you, is there an alto, uh, soprano, tenor? Is the one you feel more fluent in? You know, they ask about people who speak languages. Do you dream in this language? Yeah. You know, is there, is there one that you just feels better under your fingers? Yeah, I, I, I think of the tenor as my main act. You know, I feel like that is my, my centered voice on the horn. And if I'm going to, the first one I will pick up is the tenor on any given song I'm writing. But, you know, Grover played all three and had a very distinct sound on all yep. three, always identifiable. And so that was something I emulated. Um, I did, you know, try and keep that stuff going and still do. So I practice all three horns all the time. And, and um, it's just to have them, you know. And there's some songs I play on the alto and soprano that I think are, I, you know, sort of iconic for me. So those have to stay in the show. So it, it puts pressure on me to maintain my chops on all three axes. But going back to the first answer, I think tenor is my main. You ever break out the clarinet anymore, Bob? <laughs> I do not even own a clarinet. I don't own one. I do have a flute, which I dusted off. On the solid song, there's a little flute in the background, and on another song on the record, Full Effect, there's a section that has a little flute in. But uh, it, it took me a minute to, to get those performances right, because that's something that I don't spend a lot of time on, too. Nice, man. You know, the music technology has evolved so much since back when you started you know, in terms of whether it's programming stuff or what. Um, has it been a challenge to keep up with just everything that's going on technology-wise? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a real technophile, um, but I do know how to work the gear in my studio, and, and I'm, I, I muddle through. You know, I've got a, a sort of a, a Pro Tools guru that I can call for, for questions, but... Um, yeah, I think I'm I'm up enough on it that I'm able to make my music and and it's a, it's been a tremendous boon for me just to be able to make, you know, almost 60, 70, 80, 90% of my record here in in yep. my studio in the backyard. So it's awesome, man. Yeah. Uh Anthony had another cool question about your look. The hats you wear, brother. <laughs> I mean, and let's put and we had we could tie it to another question. Someone had a question about the album cover. Jeff, can you go ahead and pull that up? So talk to us about the design of this cover. And the look, man, you are the, the fedora is iconic. The black yeah. suit is iconic. Yeah, Where'd that look come about? Well, it just sort of happened naturally. You know, I mean, I, I, I used to have super long hair back in the mid nineties. And um, I was playing a lot of those festivals as we talked about. And the wind sometimes would blow my hair into my mouth while I was yeah. playing. It was just in the way. So uh, berets were in fashion. Then I grabbed a beret and put it on and, um, Somehow from there, I sort of thought, well, what else can I put on my head? And I found a pork pie hat like Marcus Miller wears. And I, that yeah. was sort of the look I was rocking for a minute. Um, and then just thinking about hats, started shopping around for hats and, and came across the fedora. And, and as soon as I put that on, I just got a great, great energy back from the audience about, hey, you look really cool. So I responded to that. Um, early 2000s, Warner Brothers had a new marketing person who didn't like my look, you know, the hair, the hat. Oh, and boy. she sort of she leaned on me to, to change it. So for a record or two there, I was very short hair, no hat. And uh, I didn't get as good a response from the audience about that. So, and I didn't feel like myself. 
right. so at that point I thought, let me let me do with my look more what I do with my music, which is just respond to how I feel and yeah. try and do what feels natural to me, which has always done me such great service musically. And I thought, I'm just gonna try and fashion my look the way I think I, I should look. And that's how this whole suit hat thing, which uh, you know, it's been a number of years now, but it Gotta just have feels, a nice lid. You know, it feels like me and it's a little bit of a, a helps me put on the persona of transitioning from a normal person like I am now talking to being on stage and performing. Pony James. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very cool. So how many lids do you have in the collection? Well, you know, <laughs> there's a lot in the closet, but <laughs> Usually I, I really do just, you know, I get into a, a groove with a certain hat. I think the one I'm wearing has been a couple of years now. You know, they're all very subtly different. Most people probably yeah. can't even tell the difference. Very cool. For us curly-headed guys, the hat can be a best friend Yeah, sometimes. exactly. <laughs> I never have to worry about my hat. This is bedhead, by the way. <laughs> no, that's good, man. I like it. So is my, I was kind of going for the bony a little bit. I, I was kind of blessed with the girl, the curls, too. And so. You are definitely a musical inspiration and a hair icon. So, <laughs> but the record cover that was designed by a wonderful team of people I've been working with for the last three records or so. They're they're a photography team called Describe the Fauna, and okay. uh, and they're just super talented. And you know, of course, I had a lot of input, but but the the art came from them for sure. Yeah, nice man. It's you. It's leaning up here. I'm going to see if I can send it to our producer here. He can pull it up. Uh, leaning up against that solid gold wall. Yeah, pretty very awesome. great look, man. Um, and again, let's remind the folks at home: this is coming out June twelfth. Yes, um, being able to stream it everywhere. Go pick yourself up a physical copy, ladies and gentlemen. Now's the time. You know, got to support musicians. Physical copy is definitely the way to go. Although you can start listening to it, some of it for yourself right now um, on your favorite, you know, streaming service of choice. Uh, there it is, solid. Boney James coming out June twelfth. Hey, man. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so oh, much for you, coming Brian. on the show, joining us thank for you. brunch and, and chatting with us. Again, if people want to follow along, best place to do so is your website probably. Yeah, and Okay. BoneyJames.com. Bonejames. There's got the tour and the store. We've got a new store now. We've got t-shirts and hats and hoodies. I've never had that before, so that's very exciting. Yep. Can, oh. you buy a, can you buy a Boney James fedora? No, we're not doing those. You know, Marcus sells <laughs> pork pies, but uh, I, we have not got into hat manufacturing or merchandising yet. <laughs> and people so, ask about that all I the time. I was going to say, man, yeah. something to think about. Very cool. Uh, Facebook Live is taking place every Friday, 3 p.m. Pacific. Uh, very excited about this new album, Boney. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we're going to sign off here at home, uh, but I'm going to say goodbye to everyone watching. I will see you backstage, but sincerely, you know, from everyone at Jazz's, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Take care, Boney. Well, right on. How about that, folks? Uh, Boney James, the man, the myth, the legend. That new album, Solid, again, dropping June 12th. You can listen to some tracks on Spotify, on Amazon, on iTunes right now. Talk about Groove, man. This thing is deep. Um, thank you to Boney for coming and joining us. A reminder that we will be moving to 5 p.m. Eastern time come May 11th. So mark your calendars. Also, for those of you watching right now, if you like this content, there is oh so much more on our website, jazzes.com. And as a matter of fact, if you subscribe right now, we're offering a very special deal. You can get three months of unlimited digital access. So meaning all our podcasts, web exclusive feature articles, Q and A's, playlists, all that stuff for just 99 cents per month. Plus, as you sign up, we will enroll you to receive our summer 2020 issue coming out in June. This issue is all about fusion, fusion music. That's the focus. We have a big sprawling 
scheduling widespread Q&A with Chick Korea. We also talked to some young fusioneers who are continuing the fusion tradition. Again, that's coming out in June. If you subscribe right now for the digital all access plus print trial subscription, there it is. Jeff is showing you three months for just 99 cents. Plus you get that complimentary print issue. Also, if you're an independent musician or you know an independent musician, tell them about Inside Track. This is a very cool program. People always ask me all the time, Brian, I just recorded a new album. How can I get it reviewed? How can I bring it to your attention? This is the way, everyone. You go to in jazzes.com slash inside track or jazzes.com. Click that submit your music button. You upload all the information about your album, you know, who you are, the album cover, the track listing, the personnel. You can send us a link to SoundCloud or Bandcamp. That stuff comes directly to my inbox, directly to every other editor's inbox. And yes, we do listen to everyone. It can wind up in a song of the day post on a playlist. Hey, you could even wind up on this very podcast. So that's definitely the thing to do. Um, coming up later on the brunch for us tomorrow, we're going to speak, be speaking with Rudresh Mahanthapa, an amazing uh, alto saxophonist out of Princeton, New Jersey, where he runs the Princeton University. University jazz program. He, a while back, put out this amazing tribute to Charlie Parker, where he kind of took a snippet of DNA from a Charlie Parker tune and turned it into something totally different. Um, it's perfect timing because this is, of course, Charlie Parker's centennial anniversary, something we celebrated in our spring 2020 issue. There it is. Um, that'll be on Wednesday. On Thursday, we've got a wonderful vocalist, John Regan, on the program. And we're going to wrap things up on Friday, May 1st, with Delphio Marsalis of the great Marsalis family. I hope you tune in. Those are at 11 a.m. Eastern. And again, starting May 11th, 5 p.m. Eastern for the Jazz's Happy Hour. That'll do it for me, everyone. Thanks a lot for watching, and we'll see you next time on The Brunch. So long.